Didomi is a Greek word meaning to give or has given. God gave Didomi and out of gratitude we give back to our neighbor and to our community, Didomi. My name is Michael Mutner. Uh, with Christian friends working in organizations that advocate for justice and peace, we put together the Didomi podcast where we share on the issues that we are working on. My co-host for this episode is Wissam Al-Salibi. Wissam and myself are colleagues in the Geneva Liaison Office at the World Evangelical Alliance. Hi Michael, it's good to be with you in the office again after uh, the vacation in the summer and also the COVID pandemic uh, distanciation. Uh, what, what are you doing currently, Wissam? What, uh, what are you working on right now? The Human Rights Council is, is keeping us busy. Uh, as you can imagine, the Afghanistan session and advocacy and the upcoming September, uh, mid to end September session of the Human Rights Council, the regular session with many items on the agenda. That's keeping me pretty busy these days. Well, thank you. Um, well, on my side, I'm, I'm working right now, you know, on advocacy with the Swiss Parliament and administration. That's keeping me busy also. And uh, that's a part-time work I do also with a Swiss NGO called Christian Public Affairs. But uh, let's transition now to our episode. And uh, we're glad to welcome the, our guest for today, uh, who's uh, Scott Gustafsson. And Scott is American. He has extensive experience in the Middle East as a practitioner and consultant with faith-based charities and churches in humanitarian relief and mission work. He has lived and worked in the region for nearly 20 years. He works with large funding agencies as well as indigenous groups in Sudan, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. Scott earned a, an MA in Intercultural and Middle East Studies and is currently a PhD student, student in Philosophy, Religion, Theology, in Amsterdam. So uh, welcome, Scott. We are glad to have you with us uh, on this Didomi episode. Thank you, guys. It's a privilege to be here and great we can connect even across an ocean in the middle of a pandemic. So privilege to talk with you. Uh, Scott, where are you currently living just to be able to situate you? Yeah, sure. Uh, I live in Michigan in the United States in Grand Rapids. So, Scott, uh, the reason we are interviewing you is because you uh, are researching the worldview change phenomenon among former Muslim refugees in the Levant and the de-radicalization of some violent extremists among them. You also wrote uh, about a case for missiological engagement in counter-de-radicalization in the Journal for De-radicalization in the winter 2020-21 edition. Scott, can you tell us more about your PhD uh, thesis topic and also... Uh, why have you chosen this specific topic? It's a very interesting topic to combine the ideas of uh, missiology, theology with um, what we might classify under terrorism studies or counter and de-radicalization or countering violent extremism. Um, so I, I realize it's a bit unusual. Um, and uh, my specific research through Vrij Universiteit in Amsterdam is um, looking at what relationship there might possibly be between missiology and de-radicalization. And uh, as my uh, research subjects, if you will, um, for this project, I'm interviewing former Uh, Muslims who have converted to Christianity, um, hence the worldview change, um, from a pretty fundamentalist or extremist background. Um, so the um, 
the interest started for me uh, way back when I lived in Jordan and um, I was learning Arabic at a language school and down the street working at a, a store that I used to frequent pretty regularly on breaks between classes was a young man named Ahmed and um, his uh, story really perked my interest because he came from the hometown of uh, the renowned terrorist Abu Musab Zarqawi. And hearing about his background and watching his uh, life develop over our friendship as our friendship developed, um, he started asking uh, large existential questions about his religious upbringing. And eventually he experienced a pretty dramatic worldview change, decided to leave Islam. And um, in kind of hearing his story, I was pretty intrigued about how someone from such a you know fundamentalist background would would dare to even ask some of the questions he was asking and that kind of started me on a journey of exploring this topic and here we are many years later and uh, i have the privilege of studying it um, as a, a research topic for my phd um, it's quite fascinating to hear you share these stories scott now, to clarify islam is different from islamism and it's important to state that islamism is a political ideology and Islam is a system of belief. And what we're, when we're talking about radicalization, we're talking about a, the political ideology which espouses violence. Just to start off with a few basic questions about what is radicalization and what is de-radicalization? I find it interesting that you wrote an article in a journal journal for on de-radicalization or for de-radicalization. So what is this? topic what is it about yeah good question so we we use a lot of these terms sort of interchangeably in in our daily lives if you will uh, so good question to kind of clarify terms so radicalization and i borrow from a couple different researchers in this definition these this definition is from uh, wilner and dubalis um, all of these sort of references are in my paper if people are interested to read more but uh, radicalization we, we will link we will link to your paper in the show notes of this episode uh, by the way so radicalization is a process uh, by which an individual group comes to adopt increasingly extreme political social or religious ideals and uh, sort of aspirations that reject or even seek to undermine uh, the status quo so a lot of times um, it's a, it's detailed as a process that someone moves along in further uh, angst and frustration. Uh, a lot of times it's due to perceived grievances, uh, increased marginalization of the person themselves or their identity group, uh, prejudice, shame, injustice, uh, lack of political freedom. All of these have kind of been um, outlined as drivers, if you will, in this process of radicalization. Um, a lot of times there's common elements and we see this in um, in the kind of Lebanese laboratory, laboratory as I like to call it, since the Syrian crisis where there's kind of perceived grievances that people are in, unable to address with normal channels. And then they're exposed to some kind of extremist narrative or an ideology that offers a different way of thinking and a rationale about what must be done about these grievances. And often that is uh, violence is the only answer. That's the only outlet, if you will, to resolve these issues. And then an, a third really important ingredient is a social network that creates a sense of belonging. So 
there is a social component to this and um, group identity is extremely important in um, the process of radicalization. Um, de-radicalization then could be sort of, you know, the inverse process. So how does someone go from being uh, someone who supports, espouses, or commits violence to someone who disengages from that. And the topic of de-radicalization is not without debate, of course, because governments uh, down to nonprofits are, are all trying to figure out how do we address people and groups in our society that are radical or extreme, and how do we then move them on a pathway towards normalization where violence would not be espoused or promoted as a, a way to resolve grievance. So Deradicalization is a pathway, an off-ramp, if you will, a pathway towards normalization. Um, and there's lively discussion in the field about uh, whether that includes uh, just disengagement from violence or if that must include ideological transformation. For example, someone could be um, a supporter still of uh, the cause that's very anti whatever outgroup is perceived and even think, uh, for example, um, believe theologically that violence is justified, but they wouldn't commit violent acts themselves. So does that constitute someone who's de-radicalized or not? So there's there's ongoing debate about that. I tend to fall in the camp that would stress that ideological change is a necessary ingredient of de-radicalization because um, we uh, sort of assume that belief motivates action. So that's kind of where I, I land in that um, whole conversation. But you can already sense some of the conflict because um, governments, if they, for example, imprison a uh, extremist, someone who's committed a violent act, um, can a government compel belief? Can a government compel ideological thought change in, in the mind of, of someone? Um, so that gets into some sticky ethical areas, too, when we talk about practical applications of these ideas. Mm. Yeah, this remind me, reminds me of a case uh, I was reading when, about when I was studying a case law where a de-radicalization program uh, has been considered as a violation of the uh, freedom of uh, belief of a person because he was mm -hmm. forced into a program where he was compelled in a way to change his belief. So um, th there is a tension here between the, the mm -hmm. freedom of belief of the person on the one hand, which is an individual individual freedom and, and the collective interest of, of having a person uh, de-radicalized, I guess. Yes, yes. It's a it's a very robust tension. And it's it's one I sort of address in, in my thoughts in this uh, journal article uh, as it pertains to sort of Christian theology. Where does, um, where does the church enter into that conversation? And of course, then that brings up all kinds of things about proselytization and evangelism in Islamic contexts and the legality of uh, sharing one's belief when conversion to that belief might constitute an illegal act in certain uh, governments uh, or jurisdictions. So there's lots of stickiness in this. Um, even bringing up the conversation in uh, the Middle East uh, can sometimes put you in hot water. <laughs> so it's with great trepidation and care that I try to enter into this discussion. And I'm I'm still in the sort of middle stages of my PhD. So I'm uh, admittedly trying to wade through pretty thick waters here. Scott, about Michael's question, what you just said, actually in your paper, you mentioned that for a Salafist takfiri, there's no difference between a moderate Muslim and a moderate Christian. Therefore, conversion to a moderate Islam, and I'm quoting you here, or conversion to Christianity is the same thing for that specific person. Now, 
this is seen from a de-radicalization lens, you know, that's, it's the same thing, but, and then you ask the question, does the new ideological destination matter as long as it's one of nonviolence and pluralism? Have you, have you um, asked this question to Muslim community leaders uh, in which the churches, uh, in, in, in the communities of which the churches operate in the Middle East? Yeah, it's a good question. No, I, I haven't had the privilege of asking this directly to community leaders. Uh, look forward to that someday. This article actually was kind of the first public chance I had to present these ideas. Um, and I've discussed them, uh, for example, with an Iranian researcher who's looking at religious change in Iran. And it, it is fascinating to consider, again, from a secular angle, if um, a, a very um, hardline Islamist, for example, looks at um, even moderate Islam or moderate Muslim governments or, or individuals as uh, outsiders, then I'm making the case here, you know, what, what is the difference uh, from a um, government or societal standpoint if that person converts, if you will, to a more moderate version of Islam or Christianity? Why, why should it matter? Uh, because from the Tekfiri perspective, anyone who does not espouse uh, their particular stance on um, the theological issues and identifies with the in-group and the in-group's uh, tendency towards violence and enforcement of those uh, theological beliefs would be part of the out-group um, and, again, a target or open for um, those violent acts or those hostile acts. So um, to, to answer your question, no, I, this is sort of theoretical at this point. Um, with the exception of those, of course, I've talked with in Lebanon. Now, Lebanon's a different case. Um, we, Sam, you know much more about it than I do, having um, grown up there, lived there. The um, the environment's much more open than a place like Saudi Arabia or uh, some of the other uh, Muslim countries. But I do look forward to the to the dialogue um, and amongst our research group at um, the VU. That's short for Vri Universitet. Um, we've had some robust discussions uh, about the sort of philosophy of worldview change and conversion as it pertains to um, coercion and uh, and how we uh, sort of think about and conceptualize uh, the change in belief and uh, that process. So it's a it's a very deep discussion that I do hope to have uh, many more of in the future. Uh, Scott, have you come across um, church ministries? leading to the de-radicalization of uh, people who used to engage in terrorism in the Middle East? Yes, yeah, so many, many examples of this, uh, especially since the Syrian crisis uh, started in 2011. I'll, I'll just maybe give a few examples. One uh, ministry I'm familiar with started serving uh, refugees who were coming across the mountains from Syria early 2011-2012 when that first got started. And one uh, family in particular um, was uh, you know, resettling in in the Bekaa Valley, and uh, the husband went back uh, to fight in the in the war. And the wife and her kids started receiving assistance from a, a nonprofit that was attached to a church, and um, the church was serving. Um, without sort of discrimination. I know there's a lot of groups that serve only their own group, if you will. So, you know, the Orthodox with the Orthodox, the Catholics with the Catholics, the Islamic groups with, you know, their particular uh, Sunni or Shia representation of Islam. 
Um, but this group was serving a, a pretty broad um, you know, group of people. And um, when the fighter came back and noticed that his family was being served by this Christian group, it kind of challenged his uh, conception of who these Christians were. And um, he was very opposed to it, very angry at first at his family for you know, taking the assistance and at the Christians for daring to interact with, with them. And, uh, but eventually, after some time, he was won over. Now, that wasn't without struggle. And I'm not trying to state that, you know, every time this results in some kind of religious conversion, but I think the challenge to that man's um, worldview, if you will, that there's very sharp lines between in-group and out-group, and out-group is an enemy and acts in a certain way. Um, his concept of who Christians were was very challenged. And um, now today he's become a Christian and he actually um, ironically serves with this nonprofit and serves even Iraqi Assyrian Christians who um, have come as refugees to Lebanon. So it's kind of a beautiful picture, if you will, yeah. of reconciliation and um, the power of love of an enemy put into practice in a very real difficult situation. I make it sound all nice. It was a very difficult and, um, you know, there were lots of tears and struggle and uh, abusive sort of situations that happen in the midst of that whole story. But that kind of captures um, what has happened many times over uh, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Turkey, as uh, churches have tried to live out the gospel and this concept of love of neighbor, love of enemy in a very difficult uh, circumstance with, uh, you know, admittedly some very difficult people, many of them. And in fact, I interviewed a few uh, just uh, recently who hadn't ever met a Christian before. And so their concept of who a Christian was, uh, was what, you know, the preacher had said in the mosque or what they'd been taught as kids. And that whole concept was kind of challenged by this love expressed in good deeds and care and education and medical and whatever else was provided by these churches and NGOs in the midst of their need. I'm familiar with some of these stories, you know, as a Lebanese, also having been in some ministries in Lebanon. I'm familiar with some of the stories you just shared, but also also familiar with the challenges. So my question to you mm. is, do you see Middle East churches as being able to overcome the traps of uh, coercion and manipulation when helping refugees? And you, you're writing in a context, uh, you know, in Amsterdam, where the evangelism, you know, proselytism, religion in general is seen with a suspicious eye. So how do you see the general ethical boundaries to evangelism yes yeah that's a that's a very good question so again maybe some definition would be helpful um proselytism is usually defined as um in a negative sort of connotation that it's the uh, perhaps unfair coercion um, of christians to change to a different type of christianity so that's the typical definition. I'm relying on one of my professors, Tim Noble here, has written a great article on this, uh, which I reference in my paper. But the um, the idea of coercion, and uh, there's some notable theologians who discuss this as well, is um, is not always negative. So we, we coerce our children into good behavior with threats of, you know, punishment and ca the carrots of a reward. So that's a type of coercion. Coercion is not always bad. Um, I would say these ethical boundaries get really sticky when, for example, um, conversion or even the sharing of one's faith in a particular legal context is is codified and it's against the law. 
So in Lebanon, that's not the case. Um, Christians can act very freely in Lebanon, but in a country like Saudi Arabia or Iraq or Jordan, those things are a little more strict. So, and then you have uh, not only ethical boundaries, but legal boundaries to deal with. The idea to zoom back out of a, of a church, um, you know, providing aid in a context where there are needy Muslims um, opens up the door for these power dynamics too, because those who have need of the aid as Muslims are looking to uh, Christians and um, Christians have the power in that context. So now we have the possibility of, you know, perhaps unethical coercion. Um, I think a lot of churches had to deal with this in the beginning of the conflict because admittedly in evangelicalism, a lot of the posture towards the other, if I can use that broad category, um, those who are not evangelical, whether they be other Christians or Muslims, is very much kind of a target focus. So like that person is a target for conversion to to us, to become us. And so becoming us is kind of the solution to that tension. Um, and I think uh, some churches approached it that way. Like they, in the beginning, used the aid as a coercive sort of mechanism to get people uh, inside their church so they could convert them. Um, and I think there was some robust discussion early on in the conflict about the unethical and, and even, um, you know, unchristlike behavior that that represented. And um, so there were some uh, changes made in many of those churches as um, foreign, you know, institutions got involved in funding some of the relief efforts and um, much more of a um, non-discriminatory policy was adapted and and spread throughout the Lebanese church. There were several organizations involved in um, representing that and uh, teaching that, if you will. But um, I think now, by and large, we see a much more um, careful attitude that the aid even is physically separated from the church a lot of times, so people don't feel coerced. Um, so there's this living out of the gospel, both in word and deed, and no church is going to turn away someone who's interested in learning more about Christianity, for example, but they're not going to require them to come to church in order to receive the aid. So the word and deed go hand in hand, uh, but they're uh, sort of lived out in this manner that's uh, non-coercive. And I think that's the ideal. Um, I think most churches that I've interacted with um, have sorted through the, those ethical boundaries quite nicely. And um and so are are still having great effect even from an evangelistic perspective, but doing so in a manner that's much more um, gentle and Christ-like, I would say. Scott, uh, also, uh, you know, based on my former work when I was working in Lebanon, I remember that a lot of the conversion stories involved visions, dreams, and miracles. Mm. I mean, I remember Pastor Jihad in, in mm -hmm. Zahli sharing sharing fascinating stories, amazing stories. I mean, in Lebanon, we've never had visions, dreams, and miracles happening before the refugee crisis. Now, how do you factor in this element in a paper that's one of the addressees of your paper are the secular, the governments who engage in, who support de-radicalization, the political science, the sociologist experts, how do you include this this important factor, I believe, in uh, the de-radicalization of refugees, which is actually God's work in the hearts and minds of people through visions, mm. dreams, and miracles, and healings, 
Yeah, that's a, a question we could probably spend a whole podcast episode discussing because it's fascinating. I'll start maybe answering the question of how to present that to a, a secular audience. And I think uh, there's an important, perhaps, cross-cultural note here um, that Western and Eastern perceptions of the supernatural are very different. And um, in the West, in my American and, and um, your European context, um, this discussion gets a little bit uncomfortable because it's not something that um, our theology even sometimes allows for. Uh, but in Islam, in fact, I was just reading an article recently um, of uh, how normative this is um, for Islam, which is traditionally in a more Eastern context, and um, dreams, visions, and the supernatural in general. It was a very large part of Muhammad's experience um, and, uh, and his story and part of the Quran, and so their theology allows for that. Yeah, so the concept of the supernatural, I think it's important to situate it in um, kind of the cultural context that I'm studying. So for many of the uh, refugees um, in Lebanon and uh, coming from their Islamic context, or many of them haven't even been exposed to a Christian person, let alone much of Christian theology, that's uh, somewhat normative. So um in uh, now to get to some of the specific stories, um, you guys have heard uh, many of the reports. Actually, there's quite a few in uh, the public media that have been shared. Um, I was talking with Pastor Jihad one time, who you just mentioned, Wissam, and um, I said, you know, tell me the latest. What's what are you hearing from people? And he said, oh my goodness, there's so many stories like this. I can't keep track of them all. Um, it's such a frequent uh, reported occurrence among. Muslims who have uh, been on the pathway to worldview change and either converted to Christianity or, or perhaps are considering that, um, that um, it's just become commonplace in a place like Lebanon. So many times the stories take the form of a biblical story and the person will have a dream or vision um, and then in their quest to find out what it means uh, will seek out a Christian leader, whether that be a pastor or a nonprofit leader or something. And a lot of times it's just a biblical story that's uh, been shared with them in a dream, or it's the person of Jesus appearing in white and uh, speaking words of comfort and hope. And oftentimes those words are word for word out of the scripture. So one person I spoke with had a vision of uh, the man in white who was standing on water and the person was on shore, and uh, Jesus, who they assumed to be Jesus, called to them and said, come to me. And the person said, I'm afraid. I can't walk on water. I can't swim. And um, Jesus just called to them and said, come to me. Now, the dream ended, but it repeated several times over the course of a week. And that person eventually sought out um, a church in Beirut, and um, the person that they spoke with at the church opened the scripture to the story of uh, Peter and uh, Jesus having that same conversation, and that is what led to this person's conversion. Um, other, uh, another story I heard just recently, a, um, a militant um, guy who lived in Syria had uh, been under attack with his small group of um, his militias, whatever group he was a part of. And um, he 
experienced kind of a supernatural saving from death. So a, a bunch of ordnance landed on the compound they were staying in and didn't explode. And um, he uh, had some kind of vision, like, I need to get out of here. And it was um, a man in white saying, you know, you should leave. And he fled over the mountains, uh, came to Beirut and uh, met uh, his sister who had been praying for him. She had converted to Christianity, was very afraid to share this with him because she knew he was a very violent man. And um, she uh, started asking questions, you know, what were you doing on this particular day? Because I was woken up in the middle of the night with a vision from this man in white saying, I should pray for you. And um, so uh, there's more detail to that story, but it's fascinating to me how the sort of supernatural intersects with the physical world, even in time and space in that particular mm. story. Um, mm. So that God would arrange, uh, for example, his intervention in this dream and vision um, in exact time and space as this event was happening to this this man in Syria. So I find these things fascinating. And I think, you know, for those that might have a, a difficult time sort of dealing with with these stories of, of the supernatural, um, we can study them sort of from a phenomenological perspective that this is a phenomenon that's occurring right now. And it's not limited to one or two people. This is a very robust story. If you uh, talk to Lebanese pastors and leaders across the spectrum of theological sort of belonging, whether they be charismatics uh, or conservative Baptists, for example, we find these stories of uh, supernatural dreams and visions or healings um, that, that are happening. I had a, a Baptist pastor, pretty conservative guy say to me, like, you know, I'm, I'm a Baptist, but I can't deny that God is up to something here. Um, and we, you know, our theology is being challenged by this. So hmm. it's kind of a fascinating um, phenomenon over the last eight or nine years that's been happening in the context of the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, it's fascinating to hear these stories, uh, Scott. And it, actually, it makes me think um, the famous story of the Apostle Paul, who has also a supernatural meeting with Jesus. Mm. And after being a, a radical yes. uh, Jew persecuting the new community of Christians, completely changes. And what happens next is that the church seems at first to be afraid to meet him mm. because they think this might be a trap. How is it with the mm -hmm. church, church's uh, welcoming former Islamists? And, and mm -hmm. what's happening there in, in, that, in that meeting of, of, uh, of the church and former Islamists? And, and how do each other get changed also by, by getting to know each other? Yes. Yeah. Very prescient question. The story of Paul is uh, brought up quite frequently uh, because of the similarity, uh, mm -hmm. uh, just as you described. Um, so just like uh, it's probably important to kind of paint the picture of the landscape in Lebanon, if you will. So um, the typical Lebanese evangelical church was, you know, 50 to 60 to 70 members, maybe um, 2010, 2011, before the crisis started. Um, very homogenous. It would have been all Christians from a Christian background. It's very rare to hear about a Muslim coming uh, to a, some kind of faith change. Um, but now today, here we are 10 years later or so, and um, that same church of 50, 60, 70 has grown maybe to a thousand, some are mm. 2000. Um, many have seen lots of turnover and traffic kind of through their church. So um, 
there's there's lots of different people coming all the time, lots of services offered, lots of outreach happening, lots of medical and relief ministry and food distribution and childcare. And some have started schools and um, some have, do, have done trauma counseling, all kinds of different programs like that. So the church is a very busy hub these days. And now um, many pastors will tell you that their church is no longer a majority from a Christian background. It's a majority that attend on a Sunday or involved in programs from a Muslim background. And that's a vast majority, like 70, 80%. So the church is very different. Now, all those who have chosen to convert to Christianity, they're, they're not all extremists or fundamentalists, if you will. I think there's a perception kind of, especially in the West, among perhaps like right-wing Christians, um, that all Muslims are fundamentalists or all Muslims are extremists. That's just not the case. Um, I think um, one one pastor, in fact, I asked this directly, you know, estimate for me how many folks in your congregation, this was a large church, it's more like towards the 3,000 end, um, how many come from this sort of extremist fundamentalism background? And he estimated about 10%. Mm-hmm. So if there's a couple hundred folks in his congregation from an extremist background, um, I think the... It's a big so, number. It's a pretty big number still, yeah. even in one congregation. Um, so the the idea that you're sort of bringing up, how do Christians react? You know, it, you could picture yourself in the pew if you'd been a member of this church for 20 years. Like, this is my church, and now there's all these Muslims here. Like, what, who do they think they are? <laughs> I mean, and early on in the conflict, you hear this kind of language. I mean, there were serious conflicts at church about even allowing the Syrians to come because they're stinky. They have a different culture. They speak a different dialect. They're bringing their kids and they're noisy and they just want handouts. And I mean, there was all this kind of emotional and guttural reaction. And even pastors um, who, you know, lest we forget the the Lebanese uh, civil war and the meddling of Syria in Lebanon and all of the kind of atrocity that took place there. A lot of Christian families especially were victims of kidnapping. Some still don't know where their relatives are. Uh, Many were put in prison, abused, all all that's in the background. And so Lebanese Christian pastors who are now faced with a congregation that's a majority Syrian Muslim um, feel that tension. Um, like, how in the world do I overcome this because these people hurt my family? Um, and so, of course, there were, you know, issues of acceptance. And I think churches are still dealing with that. One of the interesting um, sort of dynamics now is that the church is a majority Syrian refugee, but um, or Syrian Muslim background, but um, most of the leadership is still Lebanese ethnic Christian. So how do you reconcile that if the majority are of one background, how do you prepare a leader? How do you accept a leader of this different ethnic group, different religious background uh, to serve alongside in an organization or in a church? So some of those tensions are still there. There is there is a lot of suspicion. Um, there are still some who refuse to even engage. I think they're in the minority now, but they look at uh, conversions as inauthentic, as you know, they're just trying to get food and aid and money from us. And you know, I don't trust what they're saying. They're, they're just pretending. And um, so there is still some of that. I think that has faded as time has gone on. And, um, you know, a lot of the Syrian Muslims have stayed in Lebanon and committed to a congregation. They live in a community. They've, um, you know, sorted through their identity and decided I'm going to live as a Christian now. Um, and mm-hmm. so that time engenders some trust. But uh, I, I, I can't tell you that it's all sorted. <laughs> it's definitely still a conversation and a conflict.
Scott, how can uh, my local church in Geneva or a church in the U.S. take a step towards pursuing mm. missional de-radicalization? And kind of the assumption, my question is that radicals exist in all communities in the world. Unfortunately, the politics globally is becoming more and more extreme. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. the justification of violence in politics has increased. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, what lessons learned can you give the church so that the church can engage in missional de-radicalization? I think the one of the surprising um, elements that comes out from some of the secular research on de-radicalization is that a prominent factor, and this occurs in several places, uh, different studies I've read, um, that former radicals will tell you influence their change, their mellowing, if I can use that word, their change from a, a person that was espoused violence or hostility of some sort uh, to someone that now either rejects that or refuses to participate in that hostility or violence. Um, and I'm pulling this quote from a secular study, was the surprising kindness of someone from the out group. So it's really interesting to me how that syncs with Jesus's uh, teaching on love of neighbor and love of enemy. You know, Jesus says, you have heard it was said, you should hate your enemy and love your neighbor. But I tell you, love your enemy. Um, this idea of a surprising kindness that bubbles out of the life of someone who is perceived to be an enemy uh, has a very powerful transformative effect. So how do we apply that? I think... Um, Christians living in um, any kind of community, in, in my context here, the extremism we deal with is not of the Islamism type. It's definitely of the far right, um, you know, uh, take over the government, make America a Christian nation sort of type of, of extremism. And part of that trajectory of radicalization is, is an in-group whose boundaries are tighter and tighter and more clearly defined. Mm. And one of the uh, scholars on extremism says, if you think only those other guys uh, can be extremists and not people from your own in-group, you might be an extremist. <laughs> so those mm. very tightly defined group lines should be a warning sign. Um, and we hear that rhetoric all over the place nowadays uh, in Europe and the United States um, about extremism um, and growing radicalization. Uh, I think social media, you know, gives us the ability to tighten up those group lines. It's always somebody else's issue. Um, I, I think a, a big step uh, would be uh, just a relational connection. And I think that's a lot of what we lost during the pandemic, right? Like we were all sort of quarantined and isolated, and that, that has led to a lot of radicalization in, of various forms. I was at a, a church meeting, this was a number of year, years ago, and um, we were talking about um, how to engage folks that are different and um, you know have the opportunity to serve and love our neighbor and love our enemy. And I, I challenge this church to do something very simple, like next time you are in um, like the grocery store, for example, and you hear somebody speaking in a different language, oftentimes our like our red flags go up when we hear that. Who are these people? Um, but fight that instead and invite them out to coffee. And um, that simple step of, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? How, you know, would you be interested? I'd love to hear your story. Can we, can I take mm. you out for coffee? That oftentimes leads to a relationship and a meal at a home and, and all kinds of wonderful things. And um, if conversion isn't seen as sort of the, the end goal, like I think a lot of evangelicals struggle with that, like the only way we can perceive somebody who's different from a different group or a different ethnic group is like a target for evangelism. If we can see a, a relational connection as a goal and leave all of the 
conversion spiritual stuff to God. Um, I think that's perhaps a, a really important first step. I, after presenting that to this church, I was talking about one of the elders, this was a leader of the congregation, um, said to me, well, I can't do that. What if they bring a knife? <laughs> and the, uh, it, it was shocking. Um, but I think that, um, emotional response to the challenge of actually meeting someone as another human, um, and enjoying a cup of coffee together, um, mm. It, his, you know, his reaction was, I'm sure, very common. Uh, there's a fear there of encountering the other, this other who's been caricatured for us in movies and media and who we see, you know, protesting overseas. That's our picture of this. But hmm. I think um, if we can see people as made in the image of God, just like we are, and uh, leave all of the sort of spiritual conversion stuff to God and um, love our neighbor and love our enemy and just obey these simple commands of Jesus. I think really positive things happen. Mm. And so that's one step communities can take, I think, uh, regardless of what kind of extremism they, they might have uh, embedded in their communities. Uh, and what step can we take ju just briefly, because we are getting to the end of our episode, but mm. what ca step can we, can we take Uh, for communities that are far away. And I'm thinking, as we are recording this episode, Afghanistan was just taken over by the Taliban. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of Christians are rightly concerned, I think, by um, the fate of uh, vulnerable minorities, including Christian converts, uh, women, mm -hmm. refugees, etc. Yes. But um, uh, th there could be a temptation to demonize or, or dehumanize the Taliban. What step would you suggest to the church to have an attitude also towards, for example, the Taliban's that mm -hmm. corresponds also to the principles of the gospel of loving your enemies. Uh, I mean, some of the obvious answers are, um, are things that Christians do very well at the generosity of giving towards charities and helping churches in contexts provide relief and welcome refugees and all of that. I think one of the challenging things that just comes to mind as you ask that question, Michael, is our speech. You know, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I think a lot of times our words and how we speak about folks in the Taliban or, or extremists in general, or whatever, uh, kind of belie this um, extremist thinking in ourselves. You know, we portray um, the worst of the Taliban or the worst of Hezbollah or the worst of, um, you know, the, the terrorists, the Sunni terrorists who uh, were fighting in, in uh, Syria and forget that they are people made in the image of God. And so I think that's an important thing is how we speak, how we, how generous we are with our, our words and characterizations. Um, and do we leave the door open to the enemy, to the other, to the neighbor? Um, even Jesus's sort of classification of, of how we see people um, is very different than how we speak normally. So I, I think there's a generosity of um kind of giving physical acts, but there's a generosity of our speech um, and our openness to learn and, and understand too. What are the grievances that the Taliban have that lead them to these violent acts? I think there's, there's a much more rounded picture that we can get of um, fundamentalist extremists, radicals, if you will, whatever word you want to choose, uh, that's important for Christians uh, instead of categorizing people in these very clear-cut in-group, out-group sort of mm -hmm. formations, which then actually we're, you know, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're extremists ourselves as soon as we do that. Thank you, Scott, for sharing really amazing insights from your research. Thank you for sharing the stories and your reflections. I pray that we learn from everything you just said into how we can be more faithful in our um, mission in the world, in our 
alignment with what God wants us to do. This is my prayer. Thank mm. you so much, Scott. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate your time and your generosity inviting me, Michael. Too. Thank you for your questions and it's a great conversation. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and on Instagram uh, at didomi underscore co. And please subscribe to the podcast on your Apple or Android phones. You can find us in your podcasting app. Just search for Didomi in your podcasting app. And we would be grateful if you leave a comment or rate us and give us five stars if you enjoyed our episode. Thank you so much for listening and we look forward to to, to join us on future episodes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.